You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. God, as we think about who you are, we see you in your sovereignty, in your glory. We see you in your holiness and your majesty. And now, God, as we look at your promise-keeping nature, that you come to us in covenant, in commitment, in love, warm our hearts by that reality that the sovereign, holy God of the universe would stoop to us and make a commitment to, to so love us in the Lord Jesus. And we are so moved by these deep truths. We pray that... Again, as we see your sovereignty, we might be humbled by it. As we see your holiness, God, we might be turned to you in repentance. And now as we see your promise, God, we might trust it with all of our hearts. These things, God, we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Once again, we've been reminded that we are in the presence of the Lord himself. And uh, listening to his word is what matters most. Uh, and we will indeed be studying his word as we think about God the one who is at the centre of our lives or should be at the centre of our lives, the one whom we love uh, and uh, we wish to know more about. And so as we come together, we are seeking to know more about God. And so we should. In an age which has told us that God is dead, uh, we are asked, what house do we live in? Yesterday, this morning, I asked, which narrative are you in? Now I'm going to say, which house are you living in? Are you living in the secular house? If you're living in the secular house, uh, morals will be a matter of personal choice, whatever you make of it, what you think the morality should be. In other words, it's relative, not absolute. Uh, truth, well, there is no absolute truth at all. Truth is very much what you make it. I'll never forget uh, being told by someone as we were talking about how to read books Someone said to me, well, the reader is the author. In other words, what I read into the book is what the truth of the book is. The reader is the author. Not the author is the author, but the reader is the author. How different that must be from what we Christians believe. But it is a very common idea in today's world that I make what the world around me, including what others are saying to me, the reader is the author. Uh, promises are negotiable, of course. Uh, family life has been uh, in so many ways destroyed or put at risk. Uh, and as I say, truth is unobtainable. It's strange, however, as with all these philosophies, there are, there are terrible uh, inconsistencies. So there's the coffee shop inconsistency. You know this, of course. You've been in a coffee shop and watched other people. I'm sure it's not you I'm talking about. It's other people. But you can see them, the two of them sitting there talking. And you can see they're talking about someone who's not there, right? And they are going through the list of this person's defects. Oh, you've never know. You never guess what she said next. You never guess what she did. I can't tell you how she's been bullying me all this time, and so forth and so on. Or, oh dear, he's an idiot. Can you imagine what he was doing, etc., etc., etc. And the two people in the coffee shop are acting as judges. And they are tearing another person to piece, pieces as judges standing there. And thank you so much. I, my, my 
my throat is to be watered if necessary. Uh, and so the, the judges are, uh, uh, if, if I could commit this to you, Kennedy, if that's all right, and I'll call upon it when I, when I need it. Thank you very much. Uh, the judges are there acting as the divine judges of the universe, judging other people. And what standard are they using? Because if we live in a world where there are no standards, where truth is whatever I make it, where morality is my choice, how can they be sitting there judging others? But strangely, they do. It's as if in the human heart somewhere there is this, there is this knowledge that there is such a thing as good and evil. There is such a thing as truth and falsehood. There is something to which people, a standard to which we can be called. There is such a thing as judgment. We're doing it. It's like funerals. I love funerals. No, wait a minute. Funerals are tricky, aren't they? Uh, but, you know, if it's someone who's not too close to me, I really love funerals. Um, let me put it this way. In a world which no longer believes in life after death, no longer believes in, uh, in God and heaven, um, uh, so <laughs> what do you do to make up for it? Well, I remember reading a newspaper article once which talked about your golden years. Do you know about your golden years? Maybe you've not thought about it yet. Your golden years are the years between the date of retirement, which used to be 65, and the next 10 years when your health is pretty good still. They're your golden years. And uh, the article was all about how your children are ruining your golden years because they're asking you to look after their children. Uh, and so the, your, your children are ruining your golden years. Well, it's as if the writer of the article had never heard about arthritis. And uh, other, I mean, the golden years are a complete nonsense. But if you don't have heaven, you've got to have somewhere to go. You've got to have some golden years. Otherwise, what's the point of life? The great golden years. And they're ruined by your children. In other words, you and your fulfillment is more important than your relationships to your family. Typical. Typical, isn't it, of the world in which we live? But alas, so true. And so, at funerals, a funeral these days is, is an advanced, it, it is, a, it is a, a replacement day of judgment, isn't it? Uh, there is no day of judgment. So at your funeral, people pass judgment on you. And they do it two ways. At the funeral itself, at the ceremony itself, people speak very well of you. Have you ever heard these eulogies? A eulogy is you. Greek word, you, well, logi, speak well. So you speak well of the dead, and you say all sorts of things about the dead person, many of which are certainly exaggerated, shall I say. I did hear a criticism once. Uh, I did hear a lady say about her dear mother that she wasn't a very good cook. Um, but other than that, that's the only criticism I've ever heard. Sometimes the eulogy goes on for 20 minutes and it blows up this incredible person, blows up in the sense of a balloon, blows up this incredible person who's really the most wonderful person ever lived. I have sat next, twice I've sat next to people at funerals who have burst into tears at hearing all this. And I've said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they said, I can never be like that. I know that, idiot, because that person isn't like it either. <laughs> what do you think this is? But the eulogy is the day of judgment. And then afterwards you go to the wake and you send around eating your sandwiches at the expense of the family and so forth, and you tell the truth. You say, <laughs> really? And the day of judgment occurs there as well. 
That's what happens when there is no day of judgment and there is no golden period of heaven. You have to invent them for yourself and put them into the story of this life. Which house are you living in? Are you living in the house without God and without hope? The secular house. Or are you living in the house where God, the one true God, holy and righteous, rules over all things? And even forgives the sinner and has a new heavens and a new earth for you to dwell in. Which house are you living in? I know which one I'd rather live in. Well, words matter. Look down. This uh, time we're talking about God. We're talking about the promises of God and therefore we're talking about words. You see... One of the criticisms, one of the critiques of idolatry in the Bible is that the idols are dumb. In other words, you make an idol, you, you build this statue to a god, and what do you know? The statue never speaks. It's made out of wood. Idols are dumb. They have nothing to say. And even if you invent things for them to say, it's only you inventing things for them to stay. So your gods do not speak to you. Does it matter? Well, you see... In the Bible, God speaks. In the very beginning, he spoke and the world came into existence. He speaks and the world stays in existence. He speaks in and through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his word. He speaks by giving us his words. In fact, the words of God are seen to be the very place at which you relate to God. Deuteronomy, Joanna, where are you? Oh, there we are. Good, good, good. Uh, Deuteronomy Chapter 4, verse 12, please. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. You kept hearing the sound of the words, but didn't see a form. There was only a voice. Here was an encounter with God. There was fire, symbolic of God's presence. But they saw nothing. They saw no form. What they did... was that they heard words. Now that's a very significant reminder that God relates to us, and indeed we relate to each other through words. Twice in my life I have lived with uh, someone who's uh, got hearing difficulties. In fact, is partially deaf twice. My mother and now my wife is also suffering in the same way. I can't tell you. People, people are very sympathetic when it comes. If, you have a, if you're blind, people are very sympathetic. It's awful. But at least people take you seriously. If you're deaf, people mock you. Did you realize that? Oh, there she is. You can't hear again. But being deaf is as difficult as being blind. In some ways, it is more difficult. Because we relate to each other primarily, not only, but primarily through words. And when you cannot hear what people are saying to you or cannot speak, your relationships are diminished or even shattered. Think about it. Think about it. If you could not speak or if you could not hear or if you come to a foreign country and you can't speak the language. The very thing that makes your life 
gives you life, relationships, is destroyed or very deeply hindered because words are the very stuff of life, are the stuff of relationships. So God, they couldn't see God, but they could hear the word of God. And because words are so important, that is the most remarkable and wonderful thing that God should be prepared to speak to you. Do you know one of the worst things you can do? I don't know if I should tell you this, actually, because I don't want you ever to do it. And, uh, you know, if you're in a, a workplace or something like this or in a home, one of the very worst things you do is to refuse to speak to someone. If you ignore them, if you move away from them, if you don't relate, if you don't speak, If you're in that situation, you are tasting something of what hell is like. It, it is hellish. I've known strong people to be broken by the unwillingness of the boss or the marriage partner to speak. Now, God owes you nothing because you're a human being, because you're dependent, created. But he owes you nothing because you're a sinful human being who deserves nothing. And in his mercy, in his kindness, in his graciousness, in his beauty, he speaks to you. Isn't that wonderful? How kind of him to speak to you. And he does. And hence, we may relate to him and have that deep relationship which depends upon words. It's no accident, you see, that uh, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and we discover then the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is the Word of God. It's no accident that ultimately everything is summed up in this Word, who is Jesus. Before then, though, we come to the Scriptures. And uh, the scriptures are the word of God. Uh, you had another conference two years ago with Peter Adam, I think, on the authority of scripture, and you will have learnt much about it from him. But the scriptures are the word of God. Uh, they function to point us to Jesus. Their source is the Holy Spirit. Their source is the Holy Spirit. We may trust the scriptures, as we trust no other words, because they come to us from God himself, and therefore they are infallible. The word infallible means absolutely trustworthy. There's a trust element here. Absolutely trustworthy. And their content, as I've said, is the kingdom of God, culminating, of course, in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least in this age. Now, in the scriptures, we come across, and here we come to the idea of promises, we come across the idea of promises. Uh, not that it's a new invention, because wherever you have humans, you have promises, but we ha see the importance of promises when it comes to God's words. Uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, couple of verses in the beginning of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4, and we'll ask Joanna to read that to us. I've lost you. There you are there, yes. You, you have this monument sitting in front of you. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, do that. Don't move. Don't move. I'll sit like this. <laughs> it's okay. Joanna. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. 
His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Okay, God has given us, Joanna, what, how are the promises described there? Precious. And very great promises. Precious and very great promises come from God so that we may share in his marvelous future. Good news. I want you just to think about it for a moment. Good news. We have precious and very great promises. Now, I want you to think about promises for a moment, okay? Uh, the, the following are the aspects of promises. First of all, promises are always to do with the future. Promises always look forward. That's just the nature of promises. Thus, they are the carriers of hope. We live in a world where time, we can't control time. As I said last night, we can't control time. What's past is past. We can't change it. This present moment is fleeting. It's gone. It's gone. I, I can't hold the present moment. The future is the future. Is the future. I can't control the future. So promises are a means, humanly speaking, promises are a means of controlling the future, of putting up a sort of a, a bridge on which you can walk with safety into the future, because promises are to do with the future. So promises are, first of all, to do with the future. Secondly, they're always verbal. You can't have a non-verbal promise. A promise is a, a, a word thing. It's funny, isn't it? If you, if you believe that the reader is the author, what good are promises? Because promises are only what I think they are rather than what the person who gave them says they are. Weird. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, but that's what you get in a world which has said that God is dead. Um, so promises are verbal. And the third element of promises is that they are received by faith. Because that's all you've got. If someone makes a promise to you, the only way you can make use of that promise is to trust it. If you don't trust it, the promise is useless. And to trust the promise, you've got to trust the person who makes the promise. So you, can have, you know yourself there are certain people that they can make all the promises they like, but you don't trust them. Yes, Mum, I will be home tonight at 11 o'clock. I promise you. Oh, yes. Sorry, you know what I mean by this? No, perhaps not. Uh, yes, yes, yes. That's what you do when you hear promises that are not true. Play the violin. Uh, you know, you don't trust certain promises because you. it's not the promise that's the problem, it's the person who makes the promise. Faith is only as good as the person that you have your faith in. Yes, obvious. Faith is only as good as the person you've put your faith in. And if the person is a, a non-promise maker, then you're, you're ridiculous. You know, is a faithless person, then you're, you're foolish to trust them. Promises also create relationships. Of course, if I promise uh, I'll meet you at the bus stop uh, in five minutes' time or something like that, uh, we've created a sort of relationship, even if we hardly know each other. 
But it's no accident, is it, that at that great moment, at that great moment, there's weddings and marriages, aren't there? Uh, the wedding is one thing, the marriage is another thing. Um, just please notice that. You can spend a huge amount of money on a wedding, but it won't make the marriage any better. Bear that in mind. But whatever the marriage is, whatever the, whatever the wedding is like, whatever the wedding is like, all style and so forth and so on, I can just see it in your faces. Yes, yes, yes. It's either you've had it or you want to have it. Yes. Whatever the wedding is like, at the heart of the wedding are promises. Um, two people, a man and a woman, shall I say, let the reader understand, stand publicly and declare that they are now off the market. No one else is going to interfere with them and, and try to romance them because they're off the market. Thank you. And they stand publicly and make the promises. The public is very important because you're making this before others who can witness that you're making these promises and before God to each other. Now, people can be married de facto. Uh, a de facto marriage is a real marriage where people simply promise to each other without the public element of it, but it's a very silly way to get married. You need a public marriage so that people can hear you. It gives strength to the marriage. It's not infallible, but it gives strength to the marriage. So these are public commitments. And in that public moment, I put my trust in you. When you say words like this, that words that were said to me, uh, you know, uh, we are united in, in, uh, until death shall us part. For better, for poorer, for richer, we are united till death shall part us. I heard her say that. And you know what? He's done it. So far. <laughs> it's only 54 years and I'm keeping an eye on her. But <laughs> she's done it. So promises create relationships. Now, bear this in mind, that God speaks in many ways. He speaks through Psalms. He speaks through Proverbs. He speaks through narrative. He speaks through many ways. But central to his way of speaking is the promise. Is the promise. So God's promises matter. That's where we are now. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, there are promises before this. There's the covenant. The word covenant is a word which contains, it's bigger than that, but it, it contains at its very heart the idea of promise. Okay, God's covenant are promises of a particular type, but they're covenantal promises. They're like treaties, if you like, but treaties are promises. So covenant is a promise. Now, there's a covenant between God and all humankind through Noah, but uh, we come to this great covenantal moment in Genesis 12 where you can see his human sinfulness absolutely horrible, and now God is continuing, actually, the process by which, in the end, salvation will come. So Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, and our dear friend Abraham gets his promise. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a covenant. That's the promise. And in a sense, it's the fundamental promise. It's extraordinary. You can see how it's come true, actually. All the nations of the earth, etc., etc., etc. But of course, it came through through Abraham and his family, which became Israel, and so forth and so on. That's, in a sense, a fundamental covenant of God. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and it's repeated in other bits of Genesis. Genesis 15, for example. On the basis of that covenant, when God's people are saved by going down to Egypt and then fall into slavery, so God, on the basis of his promises, saves them and brings them out of Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And the promises are reiterated and the people say, yes, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. As part of the covenant process, he says, now this is how you are to live. Uh, the covenant is received by faith and by faith alone. That's Genesis 15. Abraham believes, it says, and was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. Trust is what brings him into covenant relationship with God. The repentant trust, which says, right, God, you are in charge. I trust your promises. I'm going to live for you from now on. Yes, Genesis 15. But in Exodus 24, where the people are brought to uh, Mount Sinai, they are given in Genesis 24 the Ten Commandments and other elements of the law of God. This is how the saved people, it's not they are given the commandments in order to be saved, they are saved and here is how they are to live as the people of God showing their, the, the grace of God in their lives. So Exodus chapter 24, the law is given in the context of the covenant, the promises of God. And then as time goes on, other covenants are made. Uh, here's one that is particularly important, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where a covenant is made, promises are made to David about the future. And so uh, I'm going to ask Joanna to read a section of 2 Samuel 7, verses uh, 6, did I say 6 to 13? Uh, 11b to 13. I oh, beg your pardon, I'm misreading it. Oh, sorry, yes, it's not 6, it's 11b. Uh, to 13, yes. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you up after your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, after, in, from David's line there will come a son whose throne will be established forever. Now Solomon comes along and he looks pretty good, but he falls. And then member after member of David's family fall into sin, unrighteousness. And yet, when the moment comes, one who is from that family comes and is crowned on the, on the throne of the cross and is the king forever, and he is a descendant of David. So there's the promise of God to David. David trusts the promise, because that's what you do with promises, you trust them, if the person who makes the promise is trustworthy. And who is more trustworthy than God? Yeah? So uh, there's an element of it. Now, 
There's a further one that we need to look at as well, and it's in Jeremiah 31, where another very uh, fascinating uh, moment occurs that Jeremiah uh, reveals to us. So it's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 36. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 36. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is what the Lord says, the one who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and makes its waves roar. The Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, this is the Lord's declaration. Only then will Israel's descendants cease to be a nation before me forever. Okay, thank you. The Lord, by the very power and person of his person, if you like, that we talked about last night, swears an oath that there will be a new covenant to replace the old covenant which they kept breaking. And this new covenant will see the law of God written in their hearts, not just in the outward form, but in their hearts. Remember Isaiah chapter 1. And this new covenant at its very heart will have that blessed word that I just love more than any other word almost. Forgiveness. Because I know I need it. And then we move on to Jesus. The promises of God in Jesus. Christ Jesus matters. And now we move to Matthew 26, which at the very end of Jesus' life, as he meets with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, and he has a meal with them, this is what he says. Please notice. Jeremiah, uh, I beg your pardon, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 30. Matthew 26. Verses 26 to 30. Go As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I'll but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thanks, Joanna. You've got a choice, don't you? Either Jesus was completely loony, I mean, mad, or he was evil, or he was God. because. What on earth? Here's God promising in Jeremiah 31 that there would be a new covenant of forgiveness, some massive 
salvation moment. And here's this man, Jesus, with his 12 disciples, one of whom was a rat bag, and the rest weren't too much better, saying to them, that from now on, as you eat and drink together, you will remember my death, and that this is going to inaugurate the new covenant of God in which the law will be written on the heart and sins will be forgiven. I mean, that's lunatic. He must have been mad. Or worse, he must have been evil. Or maybe he is God, the Son of God himself. And what he said means that 2,000 years later we are sitting in this room as his worshippers, as forgiven people, and that all around the world there are people who still celebrate the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the new covenant which came and which now embraces not just Israel, but people from all around the world. I think I know which of those three I believe. Don't you? As one great English author once said, he said, if William Shakespeare, he was an expert on Shakespeare, this man, he said, if William Shakespeare came in through that door now, excuse me if you're not a fan of English literature, but if William Shakespeare came in this, we would all stand. It's Shakespeare. And then he said, and if Jesus Christ were to come in through that door, we would all kneel in adoration. That's right. Put your own hero in. I don't know who your hero would be, but if they came in, you'd stand. But if Jesus came in, you'd kneel. He wasn't mad. He wasn't bad. He was God himself. And the blood that was shed in the new covenant was not the blood of animals. How the, the blood of goats cannot take away your sin? It was the blood of the Son of God himself who died for you on the cross that your sins may be forgiven which is your greatest need, more than, more than bread and wine, more than anything, more than food, more than sleep. You need forgiveness. And you've got it when you put your trust in the promise of God through Jesus Christ and you entrust yourself to him in repentance and faith. And so Jesus God makes many promises, but they all point in the end in one direction. You can inherit all the promises of God when you are united with Jesus. 2 Corinthians, another magnificent passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, and listen to how this unfolds. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 21. Thanks, Joanna. As God is faithful, our message to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. All the promises of God find their yes 
in Jesus. You are heir to all his promises. And when God makes a promise, he'll keep it. You can, the future, and you see what promises do? They control the future, don't they? When you get promises, your future becomes clear. The very thing you can't control in the slightest is under the control of God and he makes promises and in that way you can march into the bridge of the future with confidence. Whatever happens, you may trust God for your future. Takes away a bit of anxiety, doesn't it? When you know what your future is to be. Eternal life with Jesus. All the blessings of God. Uh, when we got married on that fateful day in uh, 19 whatever it was, uh, 54 years ago, it was December the 14th, I know that, um, uh, uh, the preacher gave a funny, gave a, uh, not funny, chose a strange text which I wouldn't have thought to choose. Normally you'd choose a text to do with marriage, but he chose a text that was to do with marriage, but I never thought of it. And that was Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who are called, those who are called, those who, come on, Romans 8, 28. I'm getting tired. Who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I don't even know my own marriage text. I'm now in big trouble. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Yeah. What a strange text for a marriage. No, it wasn't. He knew what marriage was like. Every marriage, no matter how good a marriage it is, is like a ship sailing through stormy seas, or through the seas, anyhow, which are sometimes stormy. There are difficult moments. There are great moments. There are sad moments. There are grieving moments. There are miscarriages. There is the, there is the loss of one's first grandchild. There are, there are teenagers. <laughs> True. <laughs> But Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, has been our, our, our text. We know that no matter what happens, God is in control. We know he has our future in his hands. We know that no matter how bad the storms are that come over our ship, nonetheless, the Lord is in control. We know that, and we've trusted him with that every day of our lives. I'll never forget one day we were there. One of our boys had a bit of a habit of sleep, slipping out at the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning and going, going who knows where. We didn't know where he was. We, we found, we went to his bed, he was not there. I don't know. Our hearts were beating, our fears, and we sat on the edge of the bed, the two of us. And we remembered Romans 8, 28, and we prayed. Because we knew that the Lord had his eye on that sparrow. Now, where it was? The Lord knew. The Lord was in control. And we could trust God because he was the only one we could trust. And we thought to ourselves, what do you do if you're not a Christian? 
What do you do when you sit on the edge of your bed and your child's gone missing and you don't know? What do you do if you don't have God? I don't know. Because the future is not in your hands. So what then is hope? Hope is faith looking forward. We've talked about faith. Faith has a strength in the person you put your faith in. You can have faith. You can have a hundred percent faith in nonsense, and it won't do you the slightest bit of good. You can have faith in a rabbit's foot, you know, a lucky charm or something like that. Do you no good at all? You can be a hundred percent faithful. I saw a taxi driver once with a rabbit's foot, and I thought, yeah, that's the way he drove too. Uh, I, ridiculous. Hundred percent faith. If you have a mustard seed of faith in the true God, then you have something that the world does not have: faith. The strength of faith is not in your faith, it's in the God in whom you are trusting. Thank God, because I've never had full faith myself. And about you guys, you probably have 100% faith. You're so wonderful, but I never manage that. I've always got doubts, but I do have a mustard seed of faith. I do trust God, and he is trustworthy. Repentance, when we turn away from sin and self-righteousness, and the lust for freedom and all the other things, and we turn back and we put ourselves once more where we should be under the mighty hand of God, and we entrust ourselves to him. How do you do that? Through his word. You trust his promises, and you submit yourself to him, and that's where true freedom is found. That's where true freedom is found. Yes, you entrust yourself to God, and because it's promises, you then have hope. Real hard, and just optimism. Optim <laughs> optimism, well, you can have it. I'm not an optimist, you can see. I'm not talking about optimism, I'm talking about hope, real hope, genuine hope, hope that will never let you down. And our hope is God. Not that we're going to go through a world of no suffering, we are. But we know that in it all, God is at work to bring his good purposes, and we can trust him for that. Hope gives meaning and purpose to life. Jesus said, Matthew 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You trust him? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his promise. You can trust it because the person who makes the promise is absolutely trustworthy. That's the secret of being a Christian, which the world doesn't have. But we have it, and we want to share it with the world because we know that it is our true humanity. Now we're going to say a psalm together again to conclude, and this is Psalm 96, not 32, but 96. Very good. And this is the psalm that will give voice to your hope. Okay? It's the voice of hope at work. Psalm 96, and this time I think the men will start on the odd number. 
and the sisters will do the even number. Is that all right? And then, uh, well, we'll see how it goes. All right. And I'll pray when we've done it. Please stand and we'll say this great psalm together. Brothers, are you ready? I'll say one, two, three, and then you can begin. One, two, three. Oh, no, that's a weak beginning. Sorry. Ready? One, two, three. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Rain his salvation. Declare his glory among the nations. His wondrous works among all people. The Lord is great. God is great. His spirit of our hope. For all the gods of the peoples are the worthless idols. together on that last verse again. We will all share it together, just this. Verse 13. Before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples. Amen.